0: Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we examine Your Word that was written at the hand of the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of Your Holy Spirit as You carried Him along, we we pray that Your Spirit would take Your Word and examine us. That our hearts and our minds would be humbled. That we would be seeing our pride mortally wounded by the gracious activity of our triune God before the foundation of the world and that we would see the balm of your grace applied to that wound So that we might find great hope and comfort in the work that you decreed to be done before the foundation of the world that you carried out in history in your son Jesus Christ and that you applied contemporarily by the working of your spirit to our hearts through faith. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, what was God doing in eternity past? And it's it's kind of a strange thing to say eternity past, right? since eternity is, is all temporal, it doesn't have time, but, but you understand, what was he doing before the foundation of the world, before he created anything? What was our Trinitarian God doing prior to creation? And can we even know the activity? Can we know anything about the activity of our Trinitarian God prior to creation? And by the way, ought we not step onto this ground with a kind of trepidation and humility, recognizing that we can say nothing about what he did before the foundation of the earth other than what he clearly reveals in his word. After that, we have to stop our mouths. We have to stop our minds from wandering down the various roads that we can wander down in pridefully requiring that God be a subject to the inquiry that we want to bring with regard to our objections to what he reveals about himself. I bring this up because we're going into an area, frankly, that, that needs to be handled with special care because we're talking about the eternal counsel of our triune Lord, something which we only know by special revelation in his word. And the question is, can we know anything about the activity of God prior to creation? Well, we can know only what he reveals to us. I already have one. Thanks, brother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can know only what he reveals to us. But has he revealed anything about his activity prior to the foundation of the world? Sorry about that. <clears throat> prior to the foundation of the world. Has he Has he revealed anything? The answer is yes. Yes, he has. He has revealed some of his activity prior to creation. He's revealed that to us in the Word. Now, I want to be clear here. I do not know everything, nor does the Bible reveal to us everything that our triune Lord was doing prior to the creation of the world. What we do know is what he's revealed to us. And that's all we know. And in the passage before us, Paul is quite literally rejoicing in and thanking God for what our triune Lord was doing before the foundation of the world. Did did you catch that? Not what our triune Lord did in creation, most specifically in redemption. He will worship God for what he does in the history of redemption and sending his son to save us. He will worship and praise and thank God for what he does in our own lives by the Spirit as he applies the work of Christ to us. But here at the beginning in verses Four through six, he's actually praising God and thanking God for what he was doing before the foundation of the world. God chose to reveal what he was doing before creation for the praise of his own name. Why? For the praise of his own name. Did you catch that? For the praise of his own name. So that we would be thankful and exalt him. Our triune Lord wants us to know and praise him for his work before creation. That's why he revealed it to us. So this morning we're going to see Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tear back the curtain of eternity. To see what the Lord was doing, at least some of what he was doing, before the foundation of the world. And my hope is that as we join Paul in learning what the Lord was doing before the foundation of the world, that we would join him in adoring our triune Lord for his eternal work. That we would join him in praise. Here's going to be the temptation you have as we come to this, what some would call a very difficult passage. Not a difficult passage, frankly, to exegete or to break down and explain. It's not hard to explain the grammar that's in this passage. But... What some want to do is, we come to this difficult passage, difficult because we don't like what it says, because it it literally humbles us about as far as we can be humbled to the dust. As we come to this, the temptation is to want to break out into debate, to deliberation, to questioning. But what Paul does when he's coming to this is he praises He worships. This for him is not just some dry academic subject. This is the cause of worship. In fact, for him it's the first cause of worship. So look at what I said. I said Paul was breaking into praise to the Father for our Trinitarian salvation in verse 3 last week. Look there at 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual, and I think that's blessing of the Spirit. In other words, I think the spiritual should be capitalized there. With every blessing of the Spirit in the heavenly places. In other words, we have this Trinitarian salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ in union, if you will, by the working of the Holy Spirit to Him and from the Father. So the Father decrees this will take place, the Son carries this out, and the Holy Spirit applies it to us, and we see him praising God for that. He's participating in worship. But then in verse four, he begins to elaborate upon this Trinitarian salvation. Look at the first two words there of verse four. Even as, just as. In other words, I'm giving you these kind of connecting words in which I'm saying I'm gonna elaborate on my praise to the Father. I'm blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for this salvation, this salvation that we have, it's a Trinitarian salvation, and now I'm going to elaborate on that Trinitarian salvation, and I'm going to tell you about three facets. That's what Paul does. He goes into three facets of our Trinitarian salvation. In verses 4 through 6, even as he, notice the first words there, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. These are speaking before the foundation of the world. Now look at verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In other words, the first facet is he's praising the Father for eternally setting his love and grace upon us in the Son. So he's doing it in verse 4 through 6. Very simply, summary, which I'm going to break down for you, is Paul is praising the Father for eternally setting his love and grace upon us in the Son. Now in verses 7 through 12, he praises the Father for historically, you understand the difference? It happened in history. Historically, lavishing upon us his love and grace in the work of his Son. Look at verse tw- 7. In him, that's in the beloved, in the Son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. You, you, you following this? Christ carried this out for us. Look down to verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be, now there's that phrase again, to the praise of his glory. So that's the second facet of our Trinitarian salvation, the historic work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I'll talk about that next week. The third facet is praising the Father for contemporarily. And when I say contemporarily, I mean with time, in your own life. Okay? I don't mean he just did it in our contemporary era and he didn't do it for the last 2,000 years. I mean, in your life, pouring out his love and grace upon you in the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And Paul says we were crucified with Christ. Which means, I want you to catch this, your sins were nailed to the cross, as were you, when Jesus was in history. Yet that's not applied to you until the Holy Spirit gives you faith and you believe. You follow? So something is historically true gets applied to you in time, now, right? And I mean by time, I mean contemporary time, now in your own life. What he's saying is that he's going to praise the Father for contemporarily in our lives now pouring out his love and grace upon us in the work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Again, that phrase, to the praise of his glory. So there's three facets of Trinitarian salvation which Paul praises the Father for. Eternally setting his love and grace upon us in the Son. That's the first facet. We're going to deal with that this morning. Second, historically carrying out that work of setting his love and grace upon us, pouring it out upon us in the work of Christ. That's what we'll look at next week. And the third one is contemporarily applying that historical work to us, that eternally decreed work, applying it to us by the working of the Holy Spirit. So he's he's laying out that whole thing and praising the Father for all of our Trinitarian salvation. Now here's a question that comes up. Why is the Father praised for our Trinitarian salvation? Why does he not specifically praise the Son or the Holy Spirit? Let let me first make an assertion. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all worthy of praise for our Trinitarian salvation. So why focus on the Father? Well, first we need to consider the fact that God's work is undivided. In other words, the work of God, he's one being, so his work cannot be divided it's so like the Father does work that the Son and the Spirit don't participate in, or the Spirit does work that the Father and the Son don't uh, participate in. Their work is undivided because they're one being, one substance, one God. Whatever one person does, God does. Because God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. However, there is an emphasis on the work of each person that is fitting to their persons. So, for example, the undivided work of God is sometimes attributed, using John Owen's language, is sometimes attributed eminently to one person. And that work is always fitting to that person. Give you an example. The Son is sent to become incarnate for our adoption as sons. That's fitting to His person as the Son. The Holy Spirit sent to sanctify us. What's He called? The Spirit to Sanctu, right? The Holy Spirit. What does he do? Sanctify. He's sent to sanctify us by pl- applying all this to us and bringing us into fellowship with the Father through the Son that's fitting to his person as the Holy Spirit. Why is the Father eminently focused on and praise for Trinitarian salvation then? Because as the Father, he is the fount of all deity and thus the fount of all divine action and work. He begets the Son eternally. He spirates the Holy Spirit eternally. And that's technical language I know, but it comes from the text of Scripture. Thus, it's fitting to his person, the Father's person, to attribute all praise to him as the one who decrees the whole of our salvation. That is precisely what Paul does. So let's look at our main text. And as we do that, we will see that Paul praises the Father. For eternally setting his love and grace on us in the Son. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 4. I'm just going to read verse 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him, he being the Father, chose us in him, that being the Son or Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now these three verses, or this section, many theologians rightly refer to, I think, as the covenant of redemption. This covenant of redemption is the eternal solemn pact among the persons of the Trinity to accomplish the work of redemption to lavish every blessing upon us. Now, what can I say about this pact? Did the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have a meeting in which the three of them came to some negotiated contract or covenant? No, it isn't like there's three centers of consciousness or three wills up there wrestling over what they want to do and the Father's like, you're going to go. I don't want to go. That's a horrible outcome, you know, right? That's not what's happening. We don't know how else to speak about it, folks. We just say... There's an eternal, solemn pact among the persons of the Trinity to accomplish the work of redemption, to lavish every blessing upon us. The Father eternally chose to send the Son. The Son eternally chose to come. The Holy Spirit eternally chose to be spirited, sent, proceed from the Father and the Son. That's all we can get out of the text. How does that eternal agreement happen? I don't know. But this covenant of redemption... Paul says is being revealed to us. He's revealing it to us in Ephesians 1. He's saying that this triune Lord was doing something before the foundation of the world. You know what he was doing? Covenanting to save you. Covenanting to save you. The triune Lord is making a covenant. We call it the covenant of redemption. Now, what is what is that covenant? Here, here's the parts of it the Father promised to give a people, the elect, to the Son as his inheritance. That's why Jesus said, for example, in Luke twenty-two, twenty-nine, 29, that the Father covenanted to himself a kingdom. So Jesus says, the Father covenanted to me a kingdom. When did that happen? Before the foundation of the world. That's why Jesus can say regularly throughout John, and John chapter 6 and John chapter 10 and John chapter 17, that the Father has given to him a people. He's given him people. He's given him a kingdom. He covenanted this kingdom to the Son, and these people, he also covenanted to the Son before the foundation of the world. That's why Jason read, for example, Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David is singing, but you overhear, if you will, the Father speaking to the Son through the song of David. The Lord... Said to my Lord, Yahweh, said to Adonai, right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So that the Father saying to the Son before the foundation of the world that he's going to be this king and this redeemer. Further, the Son promised to accomplish their redemption the redemption of his people, by being sent by the Father into history to live as a man, to keep the law, to pay our penalty on the cross, to be resurrected from the dead, and to ascend to the right hand of his Father from where he would rule and reign as our Savior and Lord. That's why Paul can say on the prophetic clock, in the fullness of time. That doesn't mean like we ran out of time. He's talking prophetically. In the fullness of time, God, the Father, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And the Holy Spirit promised to testify to Christ, to bear witness to Christ, and to apply Christ's redemptive works to the hearts of his people by being poured out by the Father and the Son to indwell the church and empower her to witness to Christ every tribe and tongue and nation. That's what you see in Pentecost. Thus we can say that we praise the Father because he covenanted with the Son and the Holy Spirit to save us before time began, before the foundation of the world. So let's look at this by examining these verses of Paul more closely. Look at verse for, I said, even as or just as, Paul's starting with these connecting words. He's connecting what follows, verse 4 and following, really through verse 14, with what came before, verse 3. And incidentally, in the Greek, this is all one sentence from verse 3 through 14. Originally. Now, in our New Greek New Testaments, we punctuate it. But originally, it's one sentence. He's connecting what follows with what came before. He's elaborating on the overall praise he's making in verse 3. All these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, for which he's praising the Father in verse 3, he's now extolling in detail in verse 4 through 14. So in verse 3, he's saying generally, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Okay, Now in verse 4 through 14, he's going to break down what every spiritual blessing is that you have in Christ. He's going to elaborate. And this morning we're going to look at the first facet, which is um, verses 4 through 6, the Father eternally decreeing to set his grace and love on you in Christ. And I want to walk through four truths as we do that. So here's what they are. And you, you don't have to write them down or anything. You don't have to ever write them down, but you certainly don't have to now. I won't remember them like an hour from now, so don't feel bad. It's okay. Here's what they are, four truths. The blessings that were given to us by the Father in eternity. Second, the one in whom these blessings were given. Third, the motive of God in giving these blessings. And fourth, the goal of God in giving these blessings. So I'm going to walk through those four. I'm going to start with the first one. The blessings that were given to us by the Father in eternity. Hear that? The blessings that are given to us by the Father in eternity. We see Paul provides two interrelated blessings. Look at verse four. Even as he, now here comes the first blessing, chose us in him, in other words, he elected, that's the Greek word, elected, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now when were you elected or chosen in Christ? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, and there's, here's the end of it, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And by the way, I think um, that the period should be dropped there and it should say before him in love. Your King James Version, I think, translates it that way. I think it's actually a better translation. I'm not going to really argue for why today. Something scholars argue over all the time. I, I lean toward the translation that it should be before him, no period, in love, finishing that sentence, comma, he predestined us. Okay? Um, I'm not going to justify it, though, because, frankly, my grammatical argument for it is too weak to justify it. To spend a lot of time on it would bore you. You would think at the end of the day, both sides seem pretty strong. Why do you take a side at all? To which I'd say, because I had to take a side, and I don't know. So we'll just keep moving. But he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to the end that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And now verse 5, second blessing. He predestined us for adoption, there's the end, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's the two two blessings. The Father elected us or chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless before him, I think in love. In other words, I think that's saying we're gonna be holy and blameless in love, i.e., you love God, you love your neighbor. Sums up the whole law. We're gonna be holy and blameless before God in love. That's one blessing. The second blessing, the Father predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the mediator. Our blessings come in or through him. Now you might say, why do you say there are two interrelated blessings? I mean, aren't predestination and election just the same thing? Two ways of saying the same thing. No, Paul actually distinguishes between election and predestination. He's not just being repetitive here. Notice what he says. He elects us, chose us, elects us in him before the foundation of the world that we should what? What's the end of election? Holiness and blamelessness before him. Okay? And notice he predestines us. And what's the end of predestination? To be adopted as sons in Christ. Now, I think um, Dr. Richard Barcellus rightly says it when when he distinguishes them this way. Predestination identifies a goal. Sonship. Predestination is identifying a goal. You ready for the goal? Sonship. Adoption as sons. Election determines who will get there. Us. God chose us in Him. The Father predestined you to be adopted as sons through Christ. Therefore, the Father elected you in Christ to be holy and blameless before him in love. You see, you can't be his son, right, if you're not holy and blameless. So he adopts you to be his son. He predestines you to be adopted, I should say, as his son. And therefore, he elects you to holiness and blamelessness so that he can fulfill the predestining of you to be a son. All in Christ. Now, you might say, you're saying that predestination is the cause of election. I am. And I'm saying that because of the way the participle functions there. And I'm, again, it'd be, I'd have to put up a diagram. You guys, Are we really diagramming Greek sentences today? And you, you don't want to walk out. So we're not going to do that. You, if you want to learn Greek and, and argue with me on, the, on how that participle functions, you can. But most of the scholars are agreed that that participle functions as cause. The cause of election is predestination. We're predestined to be adopted as sons. That causes, if you will, the choosing in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I want you to notice some assumptions. If we've chosen to be in Christ, been chosen, if you will, if we've been chosen to be in Christ to be holy and blameless, then what does that mean the Father was contemplating in eternity about us? Stop and stop think about this. If he had to choose you to be holy and blameless in Christ, what does that mean he was contemplating about you in eternity? That in time you would be what? Not holy and blameless. You follow that? Sinful. If he knew in time you were going to be holy and blameless, he would not have to elect you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. You guys follow me? There's an assumption underneath this. Second... He knew, if you will, what does he contemplate, if you will, in verse 5, he predestines for adoption of his sons through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? He's contemplating about us in eternity. That we will be rebellious against him and be his enemies rather than his friends and his sons. We'll have to be adopted. He knew Adam would fall into sin. In Adam's fall, you know the saying, sinned we all. He knew we would not be holy in and of ourselves, so he chose his son to be our second Adam, our new head, one who would be holy. And he chose us in Christ to that same end. He knew we would rebel against him and become children of wrath. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's going to lay that out. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What kind of son are you? One of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of God. Nope. Children of wrath. Like some really bad people. Nope. Like the rest of mankind. The Father knew we would not naturally be his children because of our sin. Thus he predestined us to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, his true son. And that leads to our second truth regarding these blessings. The blessings are election to holiness and predestination to adoption as sons, but it leads us to the second point, which is in whom are these blessings given? And really the one in whom these blessings are given. Look at verse four again. Even as he chose us where? In him. In him. Look at verse five. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. Look at verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Please note, election and predestination are in and through the Son. He is the holy and blameless one. He is the Son of God. God chose us in Him. He predestined us to adoption through Him. This speaks to our union with Christ. More specifically, there really, when we get into it, we could talk about two kinds of union here. And I don't want to get too technical, but I want to give you a sense of this. We can talk about a federal or a covenantal or an eternal union. A union with Christ that is decreed before the foundation of the world. That's what he's talking about here. This union we have, we're elect in him before the foundation of the world. We have a union with Christ before the foundation of the world. We can also talk about a vital union. Vital meaning vitality or life. The union you now have with Christ through faith by the Spirit. The one that's lived out in your life. Okay, so we talk about union with Christ, we can, we can bifurcate it that way to some degree. What Paul's talking about here is an eternal union. It's a union with Christ where He is our federal head, our Savior, the one in whom we are adopted before the foundation of the world. We're elect and predestined in Him in eternity because the Father gave us to Him, to the Beloved, in eternity. The Father, catch this, loved the Son before the foundation of the world. I want you to hold on to this because we need to get to a god centered understanding of our salvation and not a man centered understanding of our salvation and really a christ centered understanding. the father loved the son before the foundation of the world, and the father gave to the son those whom he would save look at john seventeen John seventeen keep your hands in Ephesians one John seventeen as Jesus is praying to the Father. I could have picked a lot of texts in John for this, but I'll just look at John 17, 24. And I'm picking this language up because this, this language of before the foundation of the world is in this text, same Greek phrase, before the foundation of the world. Look at John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me. Here's the Son speaking to the Father about Who? He's praying about who? Those whom the Father's given to him. His church, his elect, his people. Whom you've given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus had glory with the Father. The Son had glory with the Father because the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. The Son was given the gift of the church of you. Before the foundation of the world, because the Father loved the Son. Look at First Peter chapter 1, just to make this point even further. First Peter chapter 1. You're going closer to the book of Revelation. And verse 20. Actually, we'll start reading in verse 17 just to give you a little context. And if you call on Him... As Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's speaking to the church in exile at this point. He's saying, call on the Father, conduct yourself with fear, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Christ bought you back like a lamb without blemish or spot. Now catch this. He was foreknown... Before the foundation of the world. Who's he? The son. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. See, God foreknew him. What does that mean? He set his love on him. He is the chosen one before the foundation of the world. We see the word foreknew, and we think um, in philosophical categories like, um, uh, you know, the the kind of foreknowing. Like, he looks down the corridors of time, and he sees this, and then he knows it, okay? But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying he foreknew the son. He didn't look down the corridors of time and think to himself, someday I'm going to have a son, He's eternally the Son. He's foreknows him. He's chosen him. The language is all over, by the way, Isaiah. My chosen, the one in whom my soul delights. And it gets pulled right into the gospels with regard to the Son. What happens to the Son's baptism? The baptism of Jesus, what happens? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. For knew him, he loved him before the foundation of the world. And he manifested him and he sent him into time to save us. That's why John can speak the way he does in Revelation 13, 8 and Revelation 17, 8, when he says that that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Think about that sometime. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That's why I can say that. Because we were predestined and chosen to be united to the Son before the foundation of the world. And that eternal union, that federal or covenantal union, is carried out by Christ in history and applied by the Holy Spirit in your life. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Keep your hands in Ephesians 1 still. Look at Romans chapter 8. And verse 28. Romans 8, verse 20. Here it's being carried out in time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, when you're in the midst of suffering, you are wondering, how in the world is this working together for my good? You don't know. You have no idea why the Father makes the wind blow one way one day and, the, and another way the other day, why he drops rain one day and withholds rain another day. You do not know why the Father gives you health and joy and vitality one day and why he allows you to descend into despair and the abyss the next. You don't know. But what you do know is he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now the question is, How could any of the bad things that come our way possibly be working together for our good? Well, if if you think that means your ultimate happiness in this life, then then they'll never work together for your good. I'm sorry, someone who has cancer, terminal cancer, is headed to their death? They can't look and answer the question, how are all things working out for my good, by answering it with, well, God's going to heal me, and I'm going to have a much happier, fuller life than I had before. They're gonna die, so how's that working to their good? According to the purpose, now notice what he says. What's the purpose? According to his purpose, what's his purpose? That's your good, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, in other words, he's not foreknowing choices or decisions or actions or behaviors, he's foreknowing people. Like Adam knew his wife, knowing is speaking of a covenantal kind of love, those upon whom he set his love. He did what? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. See, that's your good, that you're made like the Son. You may die now. You may not know how good things are working out in your life now. But what you do know is that the Father is making you like his Son And there is nothing more good, if you will, than that. And what's he doing it for? So that in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn, the prototakos, the the supreme one among many brothers. And those, by the way, whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also Glorified. Notice that golden chain. Those of you predestined, he carried out the rest in history and their lives with unstoppable purpose. When he chose to set his grace upon you and bless you in the sun for the sake of the sun's glory because he loves the sun, he fulfills that choice with unstoppable purpose. He's going to work it out so that he can speak of your glorification in the past tense in that verse. He also glorified. You're already glorified. You're like, this is not glory. But it's so certain he can speak about it in the past tense. Our vital union with Christ happens when we believe in Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit, but our vital union comes because of our federal union in Christ before the foundation of the world. So here in verse 4 through 6, Paul says you were united to Christ in eternity past. He is referencing the Father electing and predestining his church in the Son and promising that church to the Son and the Son really covenanting to come and save his church. And that's what the Son came to do. Now, since we're in Ephesians, look at Ephesians 5. You'll see the Son, Paul referencing the Son, fulfilling this. And you'll see some similar language to chapter 1. And verse 25, here's an exhortation to husbands. If you want to know if the gospel applies to your marriage, the answer is yes. Here Paul's going to apply it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who did he give himself for? His bride, the church. Look what he goes on to say. That he might, for what end? that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, remember Ephesians 1, that she might be holy and without blemish. The Father elected you to be holy and, and blameless before him in love in the Son, and the Son came and carried that out. Now why? Because the son loved his church, his elect, his people, those whom the father gave him, and so he gave himself for them, that he might present her holy and blameless before the father. Now we're going to look at that more next week. Let me move to the third truth. What's the motive of God in giving you these blessings? The motive of God in giving these blessings. What moved God before the foundation of the world? What moved him to bless you with election to holiness and predestination to sonship? This is where the real debate comes in, doesn't it? What moved him to do it? What motivated God the Father to give you these spiritual blessings? Why did God make the covenant of redemption in the first place? Well, if you look at verse 4, it says, He made it, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So if God chose you, by the way, elected you before the foundation of the world, then Paul must be inferring that you had nothing to do with it. What motivates him? Is it something in you or something in him? Well, it happened before the foundation of the world. What was in you before the foundation of the world? Nothing, because you were not before the foundation of the world. You got a hold of that? Further, verse 4 ends with these words, in love. Now, scholars argue, like I said, does that go with what precedes it, holy and blameless before him in love, or with what follows? In love he predestined us, and I don't know, but here's what I do know. In love, God predestined you to be sons. In love he predestined you to be adopted as sons. I can say that with absolute assurance because if you look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God, remember he was just talking about us being sinful in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, here's what's clear God undoubtedly elected and saved you because he loves you. His own love motivated him. God was not motivated to elect you because you were lovable. You you guys hear that? He was motivated to elect you because he is love. He didn't have you. I know this is hard for some of us to get our minds around. He did not have your picture on his dresser as he adored you in eternity past. Just, oh, like your mom, Okay? He adored his own son and loved you and adored you in him, not in yourself. But I want to sustain this motive for election and predestination in our text. Here's the question. Can I sustain the father elects and predestines us based on something in himself and not on the basis of something in us? What motivated God to elect and predestine? What is the motivation for this election and predestination? Is it something in him? Or something in us. Look at Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now here comes the reason. According to the purpose of his will. Do you hear that? According to the purpose of his will. He predestined us to adoption as sons according to the purpose of his will. Now that Greek word for purpose can be translated according to his good pleasure. Or, or if you want, I think, a more helpful word, according to his kind intention. He predestined us according to his kind intention. God's pleasure in predestination speaks to, really, his delight in his choice. There's no cold election or predestination here. This is, a, this is God's warm and joyful decision in love to choose to adopt you as sons in fellowship with you. But Paul compounds according to the purpose or according to his kind intention with this word of his will. According to the kind intention, according to the purpose of his will. His will compounds the idea of good pleasure. His will speaks to his active determination to do what pleases him. In other words, Paul's just compounding the argument. According to what? His own good pleasure. His own kind intention. As he actively determined to do it. He is unswervingly committed to doing all his holy will. It gives him joy and delight to elect you unto salvation. He's not reluctant in saving you. I want you to hear that, believer. Because this is why Paul praises He's not reluctant in saving you. He rejoices in the choice of you in his son before the foundation of the world. He loves you and desires to save you. And his joy in saving you ought to elicit joy and thanksgiving in you toward him. That's what Paul, why we see Paul burst into praise again in verse six. Look, after he says this, according to the kind intention of, of his will or purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious Grace. Now that leads to our fourth truth. The goal of God the Father in giving these blessings. Look at 1.6. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He's blessed us in the Beloved. Why does good God do all this? What does the good pleasure and determined will of God to bless us in Christ cause in us? The praise of His glorious grace. That's why He does it that's his goal for the praise of his glorious grace this electing and predestining love of the father redounds to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved and if there is not enough evidence that god the god, that god elects and predestines on the basis of his love and grace in his son then you have to keep paying attention to verse 6 because what are we praising his grace we're not praising our glorious decision making We're praising his glorious grace. And notice this, in case Paul hasn't said enough yet, with which he has blessed us, that word is the word that we get, that same word of grace, with which he's graciously poured out. He's graced upon us in the beloved. It means that he has graciously and freely bestowed something, he freely poured kindness out upon you. So we are praising God for his glorious grace with which he graciously, freely, kindly, joyfully poured out on us in Christ. And in case you missed the point, there's the so what that's right in front of you that I asked last week. So what? What does our Trinitarian salvation lead to for us? I think when we come to the doctrine of election and predestination, unfortunately for people, it can often lead to despair and doubt and, debate. and these young little internet punks get together and argue it out over Calvinism and Arminianism, and they have their little debates, right? And they forget that their little debates are debates about the holy triune God of the universe, and that their mouths ought to be stopped a lot more than they are, and that they ought to be in quite a bit of fear and trepidation about how they dis. Speak and debate and discuss him. That's where it often leads, unfortunately, but that's not where Paul goes with election and predestination. Where does it lead him? It leads him to praise the Father for his electing and predestining love in the Son, which is applied by the Holy Spirit. That's where it leads him. Worship. Where does it lead him? Mission. I've got to make this love and grace known across the earth to every tribe and tongue and nation. Paul is specifically exalting the Father's Trinitarian love and grace in election and predestination. God's glory here is the outshining, he says to the praise of his glorious grace, it's the outshining of his character, of who he is. And here in election and predestination, you see the overflowing of grace and love in Christ for you. This election of predestination was not motivated by anything in you, any decision you made, anything you did. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. That's the so what. What motivated God to love you, to be gracious to you, to save you? It was not anything in you. It cannot be anything in you. And that is good news. The Father loved you from eternity. He's done so because it's his joy to do so. And he said his electing love and his predestined grace upon you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul says that in 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If this is true, Here's the question. What can you do to deter his love from being set upon you in Christ? You already did everything necessary to chase him off. Do you understand that? <laughs> to turn him away. Think of how secure the love of the Father is for you. It never began. It's always been. Therefore, it can have no end. It will always be. He eternally loves you. Further, since this is true, who guarantees your holiness and your adoption to sons? The Father chose you to it. The Son accomplished it for you. The Holy Spirit applies it to you. Who gets all the praise and glory for all this? The Father. Do you get any credit for your election no, may it never be. He chose you in the sun, not in yourself. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And some will object to this. They always object. Yes, but, but he chose me after looking down the corridors of time and seeing what I would do and I what I would choose. And yes, it's true. The Lord can see the future. And he saw what you would do and what you would choose. And he chose you anyway. He saw that you would choose sin and wickedness and he rejoiced in pouring out his abundant grace in Christ on you. That's why he graciously elected you to be holy and blameless in his son. He saw that you would choose rebellion in the status of being an enemy. That's why he graciously predestined you to be adopted as sons in the son. He did this because it was his joy, his kind intention, his determined will to do so. Fully knowing what fully knowing what you would choose and do with your life and what you would be like, he joyfully chose you anyway. With joyful and unswerving commitment, he eternally set his love and grace upon you in Christ. Why? So that we would praise him and his glorious grace. We praise God the Father for his magnificent, abounding, free, and undeserved grace. We praise Him for joyfully choosing to immerse us in that grace in Christ and by the Spirit before the foundation of the world. So folks, election and predestinations are not not doctrines to be dreaded or debated. They are truths for which we praise our Trinitarian Lord. They ought not to elicit in us fear and discomfort, but they ought to lead us to sing sovereign grace over sin abounding. Ransomed souls, the tidings swell. Tis a deep that knows no sounding who its breadth or length can tell. On its glories let my soul forever dwell. What from Christ that soul can sever, bound by everlasting bands, once in Him, in Him forever. Thus the eternal covenant stands. None shall take thee, none shall take thee from the strength of Israel's hands. Heirs of God join heirs with Jesus long before time its race began. To his name, eternal praises. Oh, what wonders, what wondrous love has done. One with Jesus by eternal union one. On such love my soul still ponder, love so great, so rich, so free, say while lost in holy wonder, why, O Lord, such love to me? Hallelujah. Let me pray. Father, we ask that your name would be exalted in our congregation and all the earth. That we would praise you for the love that you've shown us, love we certainly did not earn, do not deserve, but that you graciously set upon us in your Son, that he worked out in history for us at the cross, and that has been applied to us through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would sing and rejoice in you for this great news that our Trinitarian Lord loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world. May we proclaim this good news to every tribe and tongue and nation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.